0: Mean Old Lion Media presents the history of being Black. Hello to you and welcome to the History of Being Black podcast. I'm Jay Hall and I am here with one of my favorite returning guests. I wish she would have turned a lot earlier because we've been needing her. (laughs) Judge Angela Robinson, how are you?
1: Hi, Jay. Hi, everybody. Thank you for having me back and thank you for that gracious welcome. That was Wonderful, I feel wonderful.
0: (laughs) Uh, Listen, I remember distinctly saying to you last when we talked, we need the brains to be more vocal out here in society because there's been too many loud individuals who have no idea what they're talking about and we need the brains to come on and speak about the actual facts because this is what they do. So you are definitely one of my favorite people to do that. So I'm always going to put that out there before we start talking to any public forum. Thank you. Yeah. How you been?
1: Pretty good. As you have said, this has been a very busy uh, summer. (laughs) I don't think we expected the summer to be quite busy in this way, but it has been eventful, let's say.
0: Yeah, this has definitely been the summer of my plans were this way, but they went (laughs) that way yes Yes. the the definition of um you know me saying what my life is going to be and god baby black jesus universe saying it's going to be something totally different because you are not in control
1: we are learning that very well so we have to uh, let jesus take the wheel to quote a country song
0: (laughs) (laughs) we do we do you know something i didn't realize when we last was talking and maybe i mentioning i didn't but i didn't know that you were a dc native
1: no i'm not
0: you're not you're not right okay no so why did why do they have you listed as dc native because i know you did a lot of work in connecticut why they got you listed as that
1: who has me listed as a DC i'm not native? i'm
0: not gonna put them out there right there i'm not gonna
1: okay put <laughs> I, they must have me, there are actually a few angela robinsons to be clear Okay. And maybe maybe they looked up a bio. Some of them are famous, too, um, mm-hmm. and and got that confused. But I'm very much a Connecticut person. So that's my base. That's what I was thinking. Here. Yep.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I know you were a judge there for over, over 20 years or 20 years exactly?
1: 20 years, yeah.
0: 20 years exactly. When I think about anything when it comes to judges, it, it seemed like such a which I know it is, but it seemed like such a high level where it's not something that you can necessarily roll out your bed and say you want to submit your application for. So you're started from being a lawyer first, correct?
1: right and so most judges that's how it starts you're a lawyer first and then depending on the system you go in you either apply and then it's a political process or you run and it's a political process but either way it's it's a political process um and so in connecticut we get appointed so i actually you know was a trial lawyer for almost a decade then i submitted an application then i got interviewed by a committee, then I got on a list, then I got the governor to take me off the list and nominate me, and then I went through the legislature. So you are right. It is not something you get up one day and say, Oh, I'm gonna be a judge.
0: I'm not gonna lie to you, it doesn't even seem like something you dream as a kid. Because everything you just said, I got lost in translation about of all of the steps just in Connecticut to take. So I mean, excuse me, let me ask is very much so a lower level question that I just didn't know. Is it possible to be a judge without being a lawyer first? It is.
1: And it depends on the state constitution. Um, it is not possible in the federal system, but every state has different rules. And even in Connecticut, you we have probate court and we have superior court. And you don't technically have to be a lawyer to be a probate court judge. Do I want that judge? Judge Robinson. <laughs> like, dude, is that is that is that okay if I don't want I, that judge? I think in the twenty first century all judges pretty much are lawyers. But you have to remember these constitutions were written back in the day when um for things like a probate matter, even a judgeship, they didn't necessarily think you needed to have a law degree. And don't get me started on the whole history of legal education, which is very different. <laughs>
0: No, let's 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 not do that. Let's get started on on your history first before we get into, you know. I want everyone to know that what you know, what you're talking about. So, you were born and raised in Connecticut.
1: So I was born in Indiana. I am born a what Hoosier, part? my Indianapolis.
0: Okay, I used to live in Fort Wayne.
1: Okay, my my dad's side of the family is are Hoosiers. They're from Indiana. My dad okay. was born and raised in Indianapolis. That's where my parents met. And then we moved to Connecticut and I moved here when I was two. So I pretty much feel like a Connecticut native, even though technically I'm not. But yeah, you are. Yeah.
0: Has law law been something you've always wanted to do, even as a child?
1: It was never something I even thought about doing. So this is what I say whenever I go to talk to school children. It's like it wasn't even on my radar. I didn't really know black lawyers. I knew a couple who were, you know, family, friends, but it didn't come into my view until college when my college roommate wanted to be a lawyer. (laughs) And so she talked me into taking the LSAT, which is a test you have to take to get into law school. And I did, I took the class and then I took the test because I took the class. And then I said, you know, you've taken the class and the test, you may as well apply. And I did. And I said, well, if you could go anywhere in the world, where would you want to go? Never thinking it would happen. So I said, Yale. Never thought it would happen. And I got into Yale. And I always say to people, if you get into Yale Law, you go to Yale Law. I mean, that's, that's, that's the universe telling you this is the path. Um, so no, I didn't, I didn't think I wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't think I wanted to be a judge. I didn't even really know what that meant in terms of the steps to take. And let me tell you a trivia fact. That's quite interesting. George Floyd wanted to be a Supreme court justice when he Mm -hmm. was in second grade. And he wrote this and told this to his second grade teacher. And I'm like, wow, George Floyd in the second grade had that conception? What happened between then and the end? I mean, boggles the mind.
0: It does. I mean, I was getting ready to ask you when you said your roommate was already a lawyer or wanted to be a lawyer? No,
1: wanted to go to law school. She ended up not being a lawyer.
0: That's why I was going to ask you: Was she? Were you always losing an argument with her when it come to rent or something? She like, knew, what, what was it about ended, her that made you go over there?
1: She ended up going being a teacher, so it's sort of funny. I, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. And people always say lawyers argue a lot, but I, you know, I don't know if that's true.
0: <laughs> I don't argue with lawyers because usually you can be right. So it was, it's, <laughs> I could just imagine. So you're yeah. in Yale Law School, and which is interesting what this conversation can be about. What was that experience like when you first touched down?
1: It was different for me for a couple of reasons. One, I lived in New Haven. So I went to school and lived at home. I think that was really helpful just to have that sort of base that I already knew because it was a completely different world. You know, I met people and had experiences I didn't even dream were possible. Um, And I thoroughly enjoyed law school. I will candidly tell you, not all of my classmates, particularly of color, enjoyed it as much. And I think a part of that was because I lived in New Haven, right? So I kind of knew where to go and, you know, where to get your hair done, where to eat, where to... And so I felt quite at home, but I think it could be, um, I think Ivy League schools can be an isolating place. I think even now for people of color.
0: So the black people that were in law school with you was having a difficult time.
1: I think we all did. And I think, so I'm not going to be like a Pollyanna and say I didn't encounter issues of race because you cannot live as a black person in America and not um but I just think I had a different uh support system right there you know so when I went home and cried to my mom I had like my mom right there to like oh I get this and I understand and to walk me through because there was very much the um the feeling of being an other, and we were constantly encountering this idea that we were only there because we were black. (laughs) Like, Mm. yeah, yeah, you're in Yale Law School, but you're only here because you're black. In fact, when I was a young lawyer, one of the partners I worked with told me, well, my son didn't get into Yale Law School, but if he had been a black woman like you, he would have.
0: Said that to your face? Oh yeah. With no blinking.
1: No blinking
0: and, your and response? this was
1: the early nineties.
0: And your response,
1: I didn't say anything. Cause you know, I mean, I'm a young lawyer. He's a partner. I didn't feel empowered enough to confront that statement.
0: Was from your perspective looking back with the eyes that you have now, was that a statement that was made to spite you, like to look down or was that casual talking outside a neck and not realizing how stupid it was to say that out loud?
1: A little bit of both, but I think it is what the person genuinely believed. And and the reason I say that is because uh, this person mentored other, at least one other black woman and i knew her pedigree i knew her educational background and i knew she would never get into law school with it because of you know her grades and everything and he encouraged her to go because i really think he believed that her being a black woman would be enough like that we that schools were just randomly letting people in and of course she didn't get in cuz that's mm. not the truth <laughs> <laughs> so I think it was a little bit of both. I think he really believed this whole quota thing, you know.
0: Those two things, the partner saying that statement and then the experience of being on Yale, and even though you had your your balance where you had your family pretty much, where you circle, how does that sit with you as you go on into your law career? Or does it?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it very much influenced how I went about my career. It inf- is part of the reason I work so hard on diversity initiatives and why race is, like, my primary issue. Because you can be a diversity person and have all these different issues, and I tell people I come to it from a race equity perspective. Like, and if you want me to drill down... I really wanna make sure black folk are getting an opportunity. So those those really emboldened me to be more active and activist in the diversity world. And that's why I do kind of the work I do.
0: So I have a theory, Judge, that there's a time period that you can mark of post-George Floyd and pre-George Floyd. Mm. Let me tell you how that theory goes. This is me. I take total responsibility for this theory. So raise yourself. So before George Floyd, there was still very heavy arguments of all lives matter, words, diversity, people of color, where even politicians, instead of just saying specifically, a, you know, black problems or whatever, they lean more towards that and businesses and everything alike. Then post George Floyd, It became quote unquote okay to say, okay, black people have it like this, and black lives matter, and black people should not be treated like this or like that, or they're deserving of this. Am I out of whack for having that theory?
1: No. I mean, I I think I think the facts would back your theory up in the sense that. We were slipping more towards, uh, you know, just sort of a kumbaya approach to diversity. And then after George Floyd, we went, yeah, all of those things need to be dealt with, but we have to deal with anti black racism, which is its own animal and its own different. And it became okay for black people to say that because I think it. I mean, I know I said it before. I know you said it before. But I think a lot of people, especially people in power, didn't want to alienate groups. And then afterwards, we're like, we're getting killed. (laughs) We are going to say the truth. Black lives matter. And uh, I do think it's different. I am worried that we're slipping back. Towards the pre-George Floyd time,
0: I'm with you on that, and I, I I asked you in particular because of what you just mentioned that you took that into your practice that you were about using the word and helping you know black people. Did you find that that would make your career more challenging? Like, did it pigeonhole you at all?
1: Um, yes, I mean, I, but here's the thing. Jay, I think I was pigeonholed before that. I mean, I think we do a disservice to the reality of living as a Black person if we don't acknowledge that whether we do something or not, we are still going to face anti-Black racism. And so, and I'll give you an example. I have um, a mediation practice, an alternative dispute resolution practice. A lot of judges in Connecticut, retired judges, have it my white colleagues do much better at getting cases and work than I do. I tend to get the cases, guess the kind of cases I tend to get. The, kind, the people who come to me are usually people who represent a black person or there's some issue of race in the case. And so I, did, I do feel pigeonholed in that world into, okay, she's the black mediator. And the fact that I do diversity work, I think, makes it even more of a pigeonhole. They're like, oh, yeah, she's she's the diversity Black person. If we have something that deals with that, we'll give it to her. But all these other cases will take to the white mediators who don't do any work in diversity. So, yes.
0: Did you find that frustrating or did was you didn't care? You was like, I'm on this path. This is what it is.
1: I find it very frustrating and I'm on this path and it is what it is. (laughs) I, you know, I am not getting off the path. So
0: yeah. Thank you for saying that because it often we get treated as if we can't have multiple thoughts that coexist at the same time. It, it's either, you gotta be this, you gotta be that. You can't be weak. If you're strong, you can't, Want to help black people, but then feel frustrated about being pigeonholed. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. I can do all of those things. I know what path I'm on. And yeah, to answer what you said earlier, yeah, I was always someone who used the word black, and I didn't understand why we were using this coded language sometimes when it was right in front of us. You know, it, it, my first growing up as a child, probably, I would say, like I like to speak about universal awakening universally where everybody was on the same boat was as a child watching Rodney King get beat. Mm-hmm. That was as blunt as it can be. Um and then in Detroit we had someone named Malice Green who actually died, but it wasn't recorded. And it was around the same time period. So those things happened in my childhood and that. How could you see that and not say black? You know I got introduced to the coded language through those events because I'm seeing or hearing a black man getting beat up and I was seeing politicians and officers of the law on TV saying people of color should not be treated that way. And and I'm asking my mom, what is he talking about? You know what I'm saying? And then my mom got to explain to me all of this because it was so obvious. It was just right there. What is it about us where it feels as if we have to carry along everybody on our path for equality and equity?
1: That is really a very good question. And I mean, I could answer it from a few different um, viewpoints. You know, as a lawyer, I could say part of it is because of the way the law was developed. It was developed with this black-white binary. So the original cases and the original law actually set white people on one side and black people on another side and therefore the advances like the Fourteenth Amendment were things that we brought about, you know, that black folks had to bring about. And I think we've all, always felt that obligation, you know, like if we're going to be our blackest selves, we really as a people gonna uplift everybody. Um, that's what's so funny about people who are scared of Black people being in power because our history is to bring everyone along, <laughs> bring the Native Americans, the Asians, the Latinx people, bring everybody with us. Um, but is that a burden we should have to carry? No. When you look at the numbers, you know, we shouldn't have to be the ones leading the charge.
0: Yeah, it definitely does feel that way, even though it doesn't feel the same when we're in need. But however, um, you're on this path and you're doing the work, maybe frustrated, but you're doing the work. Does an opportunity come up to be judged? Or did you have another roommate that wanted to be judged and then you decided you wanted to be judged? Like, how does that happen for you? Because you could have kept practicing law and doing your thing.
1: For me... um A few things happened at one time. Being a trial lawyer, which is what I did, I I actually went to court and tried cases and represented clients, is an exhausting career. It is a 24-7. And this was before cell phones and before the internet. And so I say when I was a trial judge, I never had a vacation. I mean, I took vacations but I never took them without taking work. And so I was exhausted after almost a decade, but also I felt like I wasn't doing the most good that I could do. And I got an opportunity to get on the bench, some doors opened, and I thought I could do more in that way. Um, and I will tell you, even in law school, I did think about a judge show. I didn't growing up, but in law school, I was like, you know, the people who are really making law, it's the judges. Mm. And I wanted to be in that group. Then never did I know that we'd be in 2023 having Supreme Court justices doing what they're doing. But you see the power of the judiciary when you see that these, what is it, six people can change the way hundreds of millions of people live and the rights they have.
0: Six. Yeah, Yeah, that is. I, I think I read Obama say that where when he was a community activist, that's when he decided, maybe he always, but that's when he thoroughly was like, I need to be a lawyer because he starts seeing the laws on the other end. Something about when you're working against like the machine, you start to see like, there are some places in there that are where the moves are really being making. And I'm limited on this side. Yeah. I feel I feel that way that we are, that only a select few individuals actually see. So, I mean, these opportunities present themselves to you. How did your process go from that? Was it yes. Then it took like a year.
1: Every state is different. And so when I answered this, it's going to sound different from what we saw with uh, Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, it's different, right? So mine was... um, Connecticut is an appointment process. And so when you decide you want to be a judge, you have to literally file an application. It's like a 10-page application that is... More extensive than anything I've ever seen in my life. More extensive than law school, more extensive than college. Um, And when you put that application in, it goes to a committee, a commission. And the commission interviews everybody who submits an application. And they either vote that you are qualified or they vote that you're not qualified. Their vote is completely um, unrecorded so you don't know the vote you don't know how many people voted how they voted you just know the people on the commission and then they tell you whether you're on the list approved list or not Um, for many years most and this is anecdotal because we don't have official records most black applicants i understand did not get on the list Uh, and i was fortunate to get on the list Now, there are people in Connecticut who are on the list for decades and never get off. (laughs) Mm. So getting through the commission isn't enough. Uh, Once you're on the list, then it's the politics. You have to get the governor, and the governor is the nominating person, to nominate you to be a judge. So of the 100 people on the list, maybe there'll be 10 openings. You have to get the governor to pick you as one of the 10. And that happens a number of ways. Sometimes it's because the governor himself or herself, sometimes it's the majority um, party who runs the legislature, but it's some political mechanism. And I was fortunate to get on and off the list within a year. And that's pretty amazing. Because at the time I did, I was 33 and at that time I was the youngest person to ever be nominated to be a judge. So it was, there was like controversy, there were newspaper articles of why are we nominating this young woman and, but I got through and then I got through the Judiciary Committee Um, I got through the background check. The state police does a background check. I remember when the state police came to my house for my interview, they fingerprint you and all that. And he's like, well, how did you like your trip to Hawaii? And I'm going, how did you know I was in Hawaii? (laughs) And it was because they interview your neighbors. They look at your credit card. You give releases, so you have to give all this. They look and he realized that I had taken a trip to Hawaii. Um, and so it's a, it's a pretty intense process. Jeez. Yeah.
0: How was your trip to Hawaii? It just casually, I'm going to need you not to be casually asking me that as if you're interviewing me right on the spot.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, and, and that is a small taste of what happens on the federal side. The federal side is much more, that's like that system on testosterone. It's so much more that they have to do.
0: Now you wasn't so the. So when you see um, these
1: people who get appointed to the federal bench, even at the trial bench, their applications like a hundred pages. They have to disclose every speech they've ever made, every piece of writing they've ever written. They have to give character references. I mean, it is unreal what they have to do.
0: And you wasn't. I remember we talked last time. You wasn't the first black woman judge in Connecticut, right? You was just the second, right?
1: No, there were three, um, there were three at the time you. that I came on. And in my class, there were two black women. So it's always hard for me to say I was a fourth slash fifth because the two of us came on at the same time.
0: Okay. So <laughs> since you, and since one before you and the ones that was there with you, how many has it been? Have we gotten a 10 yet? Or are we still on the show? Oh, yeah,
1: yeah. Connecticut, I, I actually think Connecticut, other than the Supreme Court, has done really well. And don't okay. get me started about the state Supreme Court because we still don't have a Black woman on the state Supreme Court. But we have, you know, at least 20, maybe more, who have Black women who have been judges.
0: Okay. 20 is a is a, and I'm not... I promise you, I'm not trying to be the pessimist. But 20 is a nice number. But it's it's always for me the number seems smaller when you step back. You look at okay, well, how long Connecticut been around? How long law in Connecticut has been around? And there's been 20. And I think we had discussion before where I said as far as my frustrations, I get upset every time I keep hearing the word first. Like I'm happy for it, but I'm I want to get to a place where there's no more first this and first that. But man, 20 is good, but that's still kind of when I think about how many judges has been in life. You mean to tell me there's only been 20 black women? Like, I can name 20 in my childhood who's made decisions for me that have got me to sit right here before you. So I know there's more than 20, but congratulations to those 20, though, still. And that's the, I don't know, I think that's the part of the, where blackness come in. It's like you recognize something, it's like what you said earlier. You could be frustrated, but you're still on this path. You could recognize the 20. And that's a beautiful thing. However, there's still work over here on this end. Was Did any of that play a part when you finally got the call? Like, you get the call, you're about to be a judge, they mad because you're young, they mad because of other things. Did any of that play a part in you when you get that call and your feelings? Oh,
1: yeah. I mean, I... I... I'm so glad you said you're sick of the first, because like I just said, we still haven't had our first on the Connecticut Supreme Court. We just got our first on the appellate court two years ago. So, you know, we are still as Black people as Black women having first. So you can't get that call without feeling the responsibility to represent, you know, to make your, to represent your race well. And that's a burden my white colleagues don't have. Because if they get the call, they can just go, oh, I'm just going to be the best me I can be. Right. (laughs) And and I'm sitting here and I literally thought this, don't screw up. Because if you screw up, one, there won't be other young judges. They'll say it's because she's young and you might keep other black women off the bench. And that's how you go into court every day.
0: I mean, I have to tell you, I, I try to move where I, that's not on my mind. I try to. But I find myself still in rooms, even if I'm going something by just going to argue my parking ticket. I, if I walk in and I'm about to argue my parking ticket and it's just me and I'm the only black male, I'm the only black person in this room, I feel it. I feel like I have this obligation to articulate why I don't deserve this part ticket parking ticket based upon what my answers have given me. Like it's just one of those things that I, I try to fight it and be intentional about not, but it, it creeps up in me. It does. So I can only imagine on your level, you get that call and you hit it. Like you said, the white counterpart, they get that call and they're like, yeah, I'm going to be the best me. No one's going to, you know, I'm going to run things my way. And then with us, it's always a little bit uh, of an extra thought. I, I i was telling a friend the other day. I said, if a white person or someone not black hears about a police officer shooting an unarmed young black teenager, it could potentially be an open and shut case for them. But for us, and understanding history, we have to always look past that and say, well, what happened? We have to at least bare minimum be like, well, what happened? Because there's too much history that would make us want to just walk away from it being open and shut. There is no open and shut when it comes to us as black people. And when it comes to the law, you know, in that you being a judge, and I don't know if I've ever had to sit in front of a black woman judge, you being a judge, how far does that blackness come in? Cause you still got to do the law. I mean, I know you can watch a judge show and see some people doing some wild stuff. I know you've heard some wild stories regardless, how far does that play a part in it where it doesn't affect you emotionally from a emotional standpoint
1: I mean candidly it's hard I mean, because we we're not schizophrenic people i mean you i wear my blackness every day because that's who i am and so to sit and to try to not let bias create decisions um is the, is the challenge to consciously be aware, yes, I look at the world a certain way, but I'm gonna work my hardest to hear the parties and how they are bringing their case. And as you just said, with the police officer, you know, beating someone and to hear the whole thing, to just, it's not open and shut. And I, I feel like that's one of the reasons I ended up getting very good reviews as a judge. It's because I really worked hard to listen to the whole thing. And to not have to not let my biases get me to a point, because if I saw a white police officer who bit up a black kid as a black woman, my initial reaction is, oh, my God, what what did race play here? But as a judge, you have to listen to the whole thing. And then, you know, sort of try to put aside your preconceived notions and decide on the law.
0: Yeah, and that's why I feel like you all are special people. You're, <laughs> a, unique, you're a unique bunch. And I still applaud you on that because, you know, I might have been one of those individuals that might have just said guilty for the sake of it. That's just me. That's my best person. That's why God led me a different path, Judge. That's why I'm over here and you go over here. That's just what it is. I don't want to be sitting with my feet up like, yeah, guilty and I'm not even reviewing the files or anything like that. It's just... I can only imagine um, with some of the stuff. But I do applaud it, and I think it does come from a great place. You mentioned that. Our last conversation, I think they were going through the interviewing process of um, Judge Kataji Brown, I think, when you and I were talking. And we were trying to have a conversation, like, will this change anything for us? It, you know, And I remember you candidly said, well, on the paper, no. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> he was like, no, because we're still – The number is still not even. It's like, what, three, six, I think, as far as on left and right. And yeah, her getting in there. But you also brought up the symbolic thing, you know, about what that can do to someone in that sense of us seeing her. Um, But oftentimes, I have hear people say that we're tired of the symbolic awards. Mm -hmm. Like Black people are kind of in the front of the symbolic awards, you know, Looking back on that, it's been maybe, maybe five or six months. Is there anything we're supposed to feel when we when we see that? Because so far, because I want to get to the affirmative action thing, the reason why I'm asking. Mm-hmm. You know, she was not for going against the affirmative action case with the, with the Harvard and North Carolina case. She was not for it, right? But we see that she's outnumbered in that. Judge, help me. Like, how are we supposed to look at that and still want to partake in anything when it comes to voting societal because all the person sitting on the couch they just see that oh yeah well she went against it but she still got overruled like you know what i mean like it's still not to be a friend of action so why am i supposed to care if they're gonna make it, it goes into the narrative they're gonna make the decision anyway
1: yeah. i wish that i could give you more optimistic um Opinions. I am a bit pessimistic about the Supreme Court now because when you and I talked, I knew they were not going to approve the affirmative action case. I mean, it was going through the courts and all of us who were watching kind of knew that it wasn't going to stand. But I did not expect them to completely do away with race as a criteria and admission way they did. They kind of did what they did with Roe. They basically just said, it's done. Race, no more. (laughs) So I didn't expect it to be that far, but all I can tell you is Thurgood Marshall was the only black justice on the Supreme Court for many years, and was able to persuade some of the justices to come along to think as he did. I think it's different now. I will grant you that the six that are on that majority, I think, may not be persuadable, but that's why we have to keep the White House. Because when an opening happens, maybe we can get another one on there who is at least persuadable. Uh, I, I have started to think we've got to look extrajudicially. That we aren't going to get to where we want to get to just through the courts. That was a civil rights movement that worked well, but I think now people like you are going to have a lot more influence on what happens than the Supreme Court.
0: I I, I appreciate you saying that. I don't know how much responsibility I want to take from it, but I'm, I'm going to take your words from it because of you know your wisdom in that when. We talked earlier and you spoke about people just assuming that you got into, you know, your law school because of affirmative action. (laughs) But then to see it years later be gutted, you know, you know, in that. um, How do you respond to that? Because I remember one stat that had came out and I'll correct myself later. I ain't gonna say the number, but a lot of white women have benefited from affirmative action. Over the course of the years, you know, um, there, there's been a lot of quote-unquote laws that were ideal-wise presented as if they were supposed to be for us, ideal-wise, but then other races have benefited from it way before us. When you hear about this individual judgment, Edward Blum, he was the one who was the lawyer that was pretty much like the architect of the whole Harvard Law School, University of North Carolina, getting rid of affirmative action. And like, this is his thing. Like he didn't just try like once, he's tried many times. What type of individuals are these who wake up and they like, yo, whatever is black that's been for them, like that's who I'm going to go against. Like, what is that thing? Because it, it seems as if they feel like it's on their heart to wake up in the morning and do that. What is that? I mean, judge, when you see that.
1: I I don't know this man, but I do know what you just said. This has been sort of his life's mission for many, 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 many years. And I say two things. Someone is funding it. So there's money behind it. And whenever there's money behind things, I always wonder about the real motivation, but also, also, we haven't embraced as a country how much anti Black racism there is. Um, and I think this is a manifestation of the fact that we haven't really addressed that. I mean, I have colleagues who, in very good faith, argue that the Supreme Court was rightly decided. You know, they're, they're constitutional scholars or they're, they're law professors. And their arguments are based on ignorance of certain facts. Okay. They, they act like it's an equation you can do on a chalkboard, you know, or a scientific experiment, as opposed to looking at the reality. Uh, and, and this is what I liked about um, Justice uh, Jackson's decision. She actually talked about the reality you know, just saying this doesn't get rid of racism. In fact, it's gonna make it worse. So my answer to you is, I think some of it's ignorance. I think some of it is um, money-driven. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how or why, but, and, and some of it is um, is overt racism.
0: No, it's definitely over racism. That's not even... <laughs> yes. that's... I'm surprised that wasn't your first day, but thank you for the way you delivered it because it's definitely... is. You wake up every day and you're like, what black thing cannot dismantle? That is racist <laughs> to me. I'm sorry. Like, it is. I don't care how articulate you can speak. If that's what you're going for every day you wake up, that's what it is to me. I mean, I'm sure there are many other laws that you can go and dismantle That you have laws that if you uh, ran over a moose or something like that, you could do twenty. You know, laws that no one ever looked at into what happened. There are so many laws that you can do on that, but the black ones are the ones where you feel cause the most harm towards you for the justice of everyone. Get out of here! Like I'm not, I'm, I'm not going for that. It's racist. It's just, it's what it is. And but it is. I do like the fact that you added all those other things because it's. When I like to say it's not just racist, it doesn't mean you're ignoring racism. It's just saying there's also other added components. And you're right. To me, I was wondering, where all this money coming from? You know, that's what I was wondering. That's a lot of money if you have tried numerous times to try to take down something. Like, who is funding? Like, that was the first thing I said. And I think we all need to... I'm I'm glad that you said that because we all need to start asking these questions instead of just letting things be delivered to us. We need to start asking, yo, who is this person? where is it coming from and why is this a thing right now? And how come I'm only just now hearing about it also too? Mm -hmm. Like if you tried many times, how come I ain't hear about the first few times you tried? Maybe there could have been something to prevent before then. You know what I mean? Outside of that. For me, I try to ask or propose those questions, you know, along, along the way with that. I know with you, you've done a lot of work with critical race theory. Mm -hmm. That's so first of all, why was that something that you were passionate about doing your work
1: in? Uh, because it helped me to figure out what was going on. So when you ask me questions like, why is this happening? Critical race theory gave me a way to look at it. And that way was based on three principles. The first one being that race is socially constructed. And so if, if race is socially constructed, then there are people who have to maintain it. Um, Mm. the second is that, um, we can't get rid of racism without addressing race because um, the whole idea of we could be colorblind is an impossibility. We don't, we didn't create the, this, the, the structure of, of the system like that. And because of that race is involved in everything at some level. And Those three things help me kind of understand what's going on and try to figure out how to address it. There are lots of ways, you know, through narratives, through storytelling, by telling the stories and introducing people to voices they haven't heard, to try to coalesce through interest convergence, to try to come together with like-minded people who maybe are white but have an interest in an equitable system um, through things like social science, where we know about our biases, our implicit biases, and I would love to get the Supreme Court justices to take some training on bias. (laughs) So, So there are lots of different ways to address the issue of racism, and I found Critical Race Theory to provide a way to look at that.
0: I didn't know until talked to you last time how long critical race theory had been around. Right. Right. Like it, it was first introduced. Do you know when exactly the So the
1: of- principles of it go back to like the 50s and 60s? But Derek Bell started really writing, he was a law professor in the 70s. And he was the one who did a lot of law review articles that set the foundation that trained The people who actually formally started it in 1989.
0: So, uh, help me, Judge. How is it that this has been in existence? But yet, the people who are opposed to it act as if it's something that's just been slid into their DMs now, like, or, you know, someone posted a poster on their wall now. Like, why is it that it's become such a thing to go against now? I mean, I would think that it would be something they were going against from the jump. Remember how everybody was on Ebonics from the beginning? Like, they was not with it. Like, they, you know what I mean? They was like, no, we're not. But why does it feel as if politicians and, you know, everything that's been talked about as if they just discovered it? Did something change within the whole principle of it?
1: I think most 99% of the politicians, it's just opportunistic. They just they just found a term that they could use as a dog whistle to say, We don't want people talking about Black history. We don't want people teaching Black rights. I don't think most of them care what it is. It's just an easy way for them to attack progressive movements. And they got scared because the progressive anti-racism movements were getting momentum, especially after George Floyd's death. You know, mm. things were, pe- even white people were beginning to say, oh, we need to be anti racist. And I think the the <laughs> it's just a way to push back that. You know.
0: When I hear about Florida, you know, uh. Governor Ron DeSantis, you know, and you notice I didn't even say your guy, because I don't even think it's funny to even say that. Like, you know, he started off. And I didn't even know this, so maybe this came off the radio, but he started off giving a post uh, a post pardon to four black men accused of raping a white woman in 1949 case. That was like his first thing he started off doing when he came in in 2019. But everything after that has been what appears to be what, what it is, has been anti-black. You know, when you see that, is that another case of what you mentioned before? As people, politicians have their own personal agenda and they just grab on something that's going to get them there? Or is that deep-rooted as this was part of your plan to begin with?
1: I mean, I have to think it's opportunistic because he's not a stupid man. You know, he unfortunately graduated from Yale Law School. And I have to think he is just doing this for to, to position himself. Um, it would be very sad for me to think that this is what he really believes. But does it really, I mean, at some point, it doesn't really matter whether he really believes it or not, but he's willing to do it. And that's almost worse, (laughs) you know, to be willing to use this issue, um, knowing that there's no value to it.
0: Yeah, because I was reading Associated Press about how there are people who call out his policies, quote, policies of violence, unquote. And a lot of his language is very much, he like to say anti-woke, you know, public right. school curriculum. And how the Florida teachers now are required to instruct middle school students that enslaved people develop skills, which in some instances Benefited. could be applied. Yeah. For their personal benefit, unquote. How do we? How do we even get there, Judge? Like, how, how does that even become a thought or something? Like, I don't know, nobody who was laying around talking about, hey, yo, what were the benefits of when your car broke down? Like, how does that come about when you see that, and how does that associate itself with critical race theory?
1: Um. So, critical race theory is uh, uh is different from teaching accurate history, but um, one way that it would address that is by looking at how that will perpetuate an idea of white supremacy and how that will maintain the idea of white supremacy. Um, yeah, that that is probably one of the most troubling state and he's made so many. <laughs> so to say that that's one of the most troubling statements he's made says a lot. Uh, But the the notion that we, as a people, benefited from having ancestors who were enslaved um, is something that we really need to rally around and rally against. In much the same way that, um, you know, the Jewish people rallied around never again. You know, Mm -hmm. we will never, we won't even let you talk in a way that, Seems to suggest that we'll go back there, and that statement that he made almost suggests that enslavement is okay. Therefore, what's to stop it from being brought back?
0: Yeah, that's what it sounds like he's saying to me.
1: I mean, there were benefits, he <laughs> says,
0: right. I never even associate the word slavery and benefit. You know I me mean, in the I same sense. I mean, that's senses. the
1: opposite of slavery. There,
0: that's the there opposite. Are no of
1: benefits. benefits.
0: <laughs> Unless you're talking about benefit for your whiteness, benefit for white supremacy. Unless you're talking about that benefit, and that's what we're getting along to, right? Absolutely, it's
1: like, but that was specifically not what he was talking about. He said right. the slave, the enslaved people, benefited. And that's a scary thought, and I want people to wake up. You know the woke thing. Wake up and hear what's being said, black folk, white.
0: Yeah, folk, I, I feel folk. as if I feel as if Judge that the the word benefit might be become. It's a fear of mine that new coded word that we were just talking about. You know, like diversity and things so that it might be a new coded word. It's, it's sort of like when I was in elementary school, and they were telling us about. When certain teachers would say Thomas Jefferson had an affair with one of his slaves, you know, he had an yep. affair as if she had that much of a choice. Like, even right. if she was consensual, what is consensual right. when you're a slave, right? They had an affair and they had a family. He had another family, did he? Or did he just make babies because he could and he can afford to, you know? It's, it's, so when I hear about benefit, it for me is one of those. I'm starting to have this concern that is: Am I going to start seeing that word, you know, when I have kids and I see my niece and all of them are in school? Am I going to start seeing that word as a coded word to cover up the harms and the tragedies that happened when it came to racism and slavery? It's a concern. I'm not. I'll, I'll not. Also, what what do you say to that judge? To even when you see black people who are. Strongly against affirmative action and strongly against critical race theory.
1: Well, here's the thing I teach my students. Everyone does not have to agree with critical race theory. There are other approaches to the same goal. And so if your goal ultimately is racial equality, there are other ways to get there. So I don't get too hung up if people don't agree with critical race theory. I do wanna find out why, I wanna understand it. And I have you know, professors and mentors that I deeply respect who intellectually just do not think critical race theory is the appropriate vehicle. Um, And they think that because of kind of what's going on now. And they thought that before now, like they were saying critical race theory is gonna cause a wedge that is gonna actually hurt us from getting to where we need to be and we need to do it in a different way. The thing I've just never heard is, okay, what is that different way? That's what, <laughs> I, I'm totally open to a different way. I just haven't coherently heard what that is. And I've heard it in critical race theory, it makes sense to me, so I'm open.
0: You right. You dismantle affirmative action, but what's the replacement? Or the argument when you take someone um, and man, he he bothers me so bad that I can't remember the gentleman's name, but the other black guy who's a judge, Supreme Court. (laughs) Justice
1: Clarence
0: Um, Thomas. Yeah, Clarence Thomas, who's someone who benefited from affirmative action, you know, and then be that person that turned around and was like, oh, well, we don't need it now once you're done with it. And I see a lot of that also too where it's okay to teach kids about slavery in elementary school but in middle school no or in high school no. And it's getting to the point where it feels younger. because it feels like when I was coming when I was in college the argument was there's no need to teach it in high school.
1: Mm-hmm. Now I'm
0: hearing that the argument is there's no need to teach it in middle school. And I'm for me the tracking seems to be getting low to the point where you might feel that you don't need to teach it at 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 all. When I see those things judge you know to before we leave about it here as a citizen what do you advise us as citizens to be aware of to know when we see these things that are anti policies that, that are for us like mm-hmm. what what is something that we can do when it when it comes to that
1: so social organizing i think is going to be very important um leveraging groups like black lives matter but other groups because i think we have to have an electoral strategy where we get people into office who will not change the written laws but the other thing is really education i mean i don't think we can give up on what you just said making sure education is properly taught from elementary school through graduate school and that's a full-time effort you know, I never thought we would be arguing about actually teaching American history, but we are. We're we're arguing about whether we should teach the whole history or part of the history or whether we should even mention the word black. I mean, it's, there's a lot to do. Education, social organizing, political activism. Those would be my three.
0: I agree. And talking to people like yourself, that actually know what they're talking about is where and I, that's
1: why that. I said <laughs> people like you are going to have more influence because you're one of those people. Like you've spoken to so many people, you have been exposed to so many ideas, you know, more than the average Joe. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so having a platform to get that out there is very important.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, I, I can't, Thank you more, judge, about coming on here to, to break those two um, those things down and you know being able to articulate it in a way where it's understandable for me and I know it's understandable for others but because it can just be so frustrating because it's like, okay, if you're gonna tell me that this is going to happen, but there's nothing I can do right what is it then what is it that I can do? Or don't just tell me to go vote. It needs to be vote something else because before we leave, something that annoys me is how much we're in love with celebrity. And I really get teed off by celebrities who wake up in the late of October and all of a sudden now when I want to say, well, I'm going to hold my vote as if you don't know that impact is going to have. Because I didn't hear about you in June or July when everything's fine. I'm hearing about you now, November 1st, and they're doing the same thing to what you just said. You're not giving me an alternative that I can rely on. Don't just tell me to fill in the box. Who am I filling the box for? For and will it actually do anything? Because ultimately, if it doesn't do anything, we're right back at it, Judge, right? I mean, we're we're sitting right back down. And so, you know, that's something that I'm glad that you were able to come on here and and break that down, um, especially in those two histories. I'm definitely, you know, in time, going to reach out to you again because I know there's going to be more foolishness. (laughs) So we will be wishing, you know, reaching out to you again. Before we leave, Judge, is there anything that we should be paying attention to um, that we should at least be monitoring right now that won't creep up on us that you can think of.
1: Oh my goodness, there's there's so much. There are um, a few more Supreme Court cases that are gonna be coming down the pike that are gonna affect some race issues, but I don't know that they've been accepted on the docket yet. So I think, honestly, the biggest thing in front of us right now are the elections coming up. And a lot of what you said is the reason I say that because. I've talked to so many black men who just say, it really doesn't matter who I vote for, because at the end of the day, nothing has changed whether we've had this person or that person. And so really kind of getting that energy back to say, it may matter on the margins only. Like your life may mainly be the same, but on these little outskirts, it matters a lot. It would be very different if Hillary Clinton had been in the White House. Um, and not Donald Trump. The affirmative action case would have ended up really differently. <laughs> so those those are the things we need to get people to see matter.
0: Yes, we do. I, I appreciate that. One thing I told myself I was going to be more educated on, this is just me being transparent, is more about the local elections and understanding how valuable that plays a part instead of looking at the big thing. Like, you know, you're looking at the president to take out the trash in your front yard, but you need to find out who's the one that's in charge of the dumpster being full in your front yard. You need to find out who that person is. And so one thing I'm always going to say, and I'm, I'm going to do a better job of it myself. Like I watch a lot of national news. I'm like, yo, I need to turn up to some local news. I need to know what's going on in my backyard. So that's something that I'm putting out there into the universe. So I'm glad that you putting out elections out there too, because I need to do more work and I'm hoping anyone who hears this does more work, so. Thank you very much, Judge. Is there any way that you ever get a platform yet? Anything on social media from we last talked, where people can keep track of what you're doing? Anything at all, Judge? Please.
1: I am so not great at that, but I promise, I promise I'm going to get better. Okay.
0: Okay. (laughs) All right. Because you know I'm going to be on you about it. I just need something, Judge. Even if you're not doing nothing, but just telling us what to look at. Think about that. You know what I mean? It don't have to be your opinion. It can be just a new, a clipping in the site and say, hey, listen, go read up on this. And I'll, we'll, we'll do that. Because we need you out there, Judge. We do. Okay. We need you out Thank there. Thank you. Thank you very much. This has been another great, fantastic episode of History in Black. With one of my favorite people, Judge Angela Robinson, who I humbly always appreciate her coming on here. As usual, make sure you catch an episode of us anywhere where you listen to podcasts that can be apple music that can be spotify you can also follow me on all social media platforms at Hall society you be blessed and successful we will talk to you soon the history of being black is hosted by jay hall executive producer ken johnson find the history of being black podcast on apple Podcasts, stitcher spotify iheart radio odyssey amazon music or where you get your podcast. Find the History of Being Black podcast on IG at The History of Being Black. Follow the Mean Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean Line Media. Get the Mean Line Media app in the App Store or on Google Play. The History of Being Black podcast is a Mean Line Media production.